Welcome to Have Hope Will Travel. When we travel, we get to know people who are different than we are. We hear a different perspective, we better understand others' stories. The world becomes a smaller place when we learn to stand with people instead of having opinions on issues. I'm your host, Katie Axelson. Friend, I am so glad to be back with you. I'm a little out of practice of podcasting. If you weren't following along on Instagram, my family had a really rough first half of the year where we had someone in the hospital every single month. That's five different people, maybe six, depending on how you count, um, over the course of the first couple months, and we had two funerals. Then in June, I moved across the country and unintentionally paused the podcast so that I could make space for the intentionality to build real, real life relationships and adjust to a new culture because yes, Texas and Minnesota are very different cultures. You know, plus I was learning a new job and all those kinds of things. So the podcast is back. I'm hoping we can maintain the every other Monday schedule, but I do not make any promises. Because like I said, I am out of practice. And you will hear that in the show when I say something silly. And you will hear that in the show because the recording did not pick up my podcasting mic. It picked up my headphones instead. And so sometimes you hear my hair on the headphones mic. I am so sorry. I know what happened. I know how it happened. I thought I had checked it, but apparently I didn't. I'm out of practice. I'm relearning how to do this. I'd also love it if you want to come alongside me and relearn with me. I cannot do this by myself. I have never done this by myself. And I'm looking to build the team a little bit more. We're looking for some volunteers who might want to help produce the show or maybe oversee the transcripts or um, help me relearn how to write show notes or do the marketing. Um, send me an email, katie at katieaxelson.com, and let's chat. The other thing I wanted to let you know is that it, this is a really good show with a really powerful, hard story. So I need to put a content warning on it. I need you to know that we talk about cults, we talk about sex and labor trafficking, we talk about abuse, and we do talk about suicide. If those aren't things that would be good for you to hear right now, maybe check out episode 95 instead with Grace Tran. She talks about faith at work. Maybe episode 92, where Janet shares about raising her family in multiple countries. There are quite a few episodes in the archives that may be a better fit for you today. All right, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that we're back. Welcome to Have Hope Will Travel. I'm your host, Katie Axelson. I'm here today with a new friend, Amanda Katarzy. Amanda and I met in a podcasting group that we are both part of. Today, she's here with us to share what I'm guessing is going to be a pretty hard story. Um, she was raised in a cult, and then she was later sex trafficked. She wasn't allowed to have a voice, an opinion, or a personality. Um, and writing was the only safe way she found to express herself. Now she's a creative strategist, a copywriter, and an executive, and I am so excited to get to learn from her. So Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. So thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to get to hear the details of your story. Obviously, we've already chatted a fair bit, um, but to be able to, uh, to understand a little bit more about what your world has looked like. So let's just go ahead and get started. I kind of gave us a high level of where you've been through, but I would love to hear it from your perspective. Yeah, um, we can start from the beginning, I guess. <laughs> my uh, my family is an Italian circus family. My parents met in the circus, um, and they wanted a very different lifestyle for their children. And uh, their goal was to give us a more holistic, less gypsyous, you know, structured lifestyle, and to homeschool us. And the only people that were really offering homeschool curriculum back in you know, the early 90s when homeschooling wasn't cool was uh, a few random Christian organizations and a cult called ATI. And so they uh, signed up for the cult, not knowing exactly what it was, but knowing that they were giving them a blueprint to raise 
godly children so their intentions were very pure um and i love my parents they're incredible human beings but um you know when you act in fear over something you love you create dysfunction and that's what happened so we were raised in this cult um if you want to learn more about it there's a netflix documentary on it called shiny happy people um but basically it's an ultra conservative christian cult christian if you will it's not very christian but um it was very i i compare it to being amish race amish almost because we had a lot of the similar belief systems and ideologies but unfortunately it really set me up for failure in the future uh, because my role as a woman was very confused Um, my role on the planet was very convoluted and confused and so when i was uh, approached with real life issues and and not nice people i was easily taken advantage of so Uh, I mean, fast forward to my 20s, I moved to California, I'm trying to figure out life. And I ran into somebody who was not a nice person. And I thought he was amazing. And he was my quote, unquote, boyfriend. But he ended up sex and labor trafficking me. So yeah, it was a pretty wild (laughs) first half of the life, right? (laughs) No kidding. No kidding. So let's start with the cult first, since that's what started first. How did you identify that you were part of a cult? I didn't identify that until much later in life. Um, I mean, I knew it was dysfunctional because I remember when I'm in California talking to everyone's talking about how they were disciplined or how they were raised. And when I would chime in, they would get horrified looks on their faces. And Mm. I thought it was normal. And then realizing that that's not normal and that was dysfunctional and that was borderline abuse. Um, Again, not putting any blame on my parents, but just recognizing that they were doing their best with what they had. Um, And so I think that's when it started to click of like, oh, yeah, that wasn't a normal childhood or upbringing. Um, And then later on in life, I found a bunch of groups like recovery groups and groups for people who had escaped it. Um, And I was like, oh, this is something that I should have been escaping. And this is something then that really kind of started clicking for me. And then definitely when the documentary came out, it was like, it was so nice not to be gaslit anymore. It was such a huge relief to be like, yep, that's what it was. Yep. It was not great. And yeah, now the world knows. So Um, Yeah, that was that process. It was a very strange process, though. Yeah, I would say since you didn't know that you needed to like be escaping from it, but obviously you're not part of it anymore. So what did that leaving look like? It was very passive. We kind of worked our way out of favor anyways, because the one of the main things, characteristics of being a family in it is to have as many children as possible. And um, my parents could only have two And so we were kind of outcasted anyways. And then, um, you know, I wasn't blonde hair, blue eyed. We were Italian. So and I was a little bit outspoken. So we just kind of worked our way out of it. And once we finished high school, if you can even call it high school, then um, we ran out of curriculum, basically. And so it was either go to their college or go into their, you know, different training programs or continue on with life and we just kind of continued on with life so it wasn't like a big like um what's that Scientology kind of situation to where we're being harassed or follow around we just kind of were like okay bye (laughs) and we just kind of worked our way out yeah 
But then, okay, bye turned into not a great situation there either. So tell us yeah. a little bit more about how you identify that you're being trafficked. Again, that took quite a while. I think when people are in the situation, right, you can't see it clearly. Um, and I, and there's part of a protection mechanism that your subconscious lays down to protect you from the truth because the truth is sometimes too much to process uh, that fresh out of it. So I it wasn't until I had gotten away from my trafficker, was all the way back home, living with my parents as an adult, which was just very humbling. And uh, I started working for a nonprofit because I was, I thought, okay, I've, I've been abused. I was in an abusive relationship. So I want to help other women who are abused. And ironically enough, the first place that gave me a job was an anti-sex trafficking organization. Uh, and so I started doing all the intake forms and going through the, the requests to be in the program. So I'm reading all these women's stories and I'm like, oh my God, this is literally my experience. And mm. that's when the realization, I went to my boss and I said, hey, this is what happened to me. I've, you know, I can pull up text messages. I can pull up where money was exchanged. I can pull up all this stuff. Um, and, you know, the realization, and she's like, okay, I got you. Put me in the same therapy that we're putting all of our clients in. And um, it was it was a perfect situation actually, because I got the help I needed and was able to process that with a very supportive community. Yeah. What a cool surprise. I mean, mm -hmm. not cool, obviously, that's maybe a terrible phrasing of it. But like, what a cool <laughs> surprise to already be there is what I'm trying to say to already be there to have the resources in place is what I'm going for. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I feel super blessed in that uh, everything happens for a reason. And like, how ironic. Yeah, like, I did you you don't even know where to find those places normally like they're very undercover right. they're very underground and I just so happen to apply and I just so happen to get a job like it's just right. couldn't have been more arranged or more perfect so tell us a little bit about what escaping that looked like the trafficking sorry not the um, recovery <laughs> I, I, was like, I was like excuse you <laughs> um, oh my gosh <laughs> Uh, no, it was it was very traumatic as in chaotic as in everything in those types of situations. So I was driving back from because I was doing MMA at the time I was fighting so that I was being sex and labor traffic. So that was wow. the labor trafficking part um, is fighting cage fighting. And so I was driving back from a training session and a girl ran a light and T-boned my truck and totaled the truck. And um, I was knocked out cold, came to a police officer was standing over me going, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. And um, I had a traumatic brain injury, but it was the clearest I'd thought in years. And mm. I was again, it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what's happening. It was this is not who I am. This is not who I'm called to be. This is not the life I want. And I recognized that I had a very small window of time that I'd be thinking clearly and I needed to act on it because that window would be closed and I'd be sucked back in again. And um, he didn't know where I was because obviously I was in an accident. Um, so at that point, I tried to commit suicide, uh, got, woke up to my stomach getting pumped, went and got a puppy because uh, I figured I wouldn't kill myself if I had a dog to take care of. And then I bought a one-way plane ticket back to Florida and left everything wow. after five wow. years of living in California. Yeah. So you never went home again after the accident? No, I so did. So 
You did. I okay. was in I was in California for five years, right? So I left home, left yeah. the cult, went to California for five years. That all bad stuff happened, and then I went back yeah. to Florida, where I am Got now. It. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so you're still in Florida now. Mm-hmm. And then what did the recovery process look like? So I know that you said that like your boss was able to get you into the program, the the cool surprise. Um, yeah. And then like what did the the therapy look like? Like what was helpful to you? It was very messy. Uh, just because, you know, like healing is always very messy. If you think about any major wound that you got to change bandages, it's gross. It looks terrible. It smells terrible. Um, it's a huge process and that's basically how it was with me. And again, my parents were so full of grace and so amazing with giving me the space I needed because I was a horrible person. I was full of rage, PTSD, a traumatic brain injury. Like I was a hot mess. Um, and they just were so supportive and you know um, obviously didn't violate boundaries for themselves but gave me the space I needed and held space for me continually so that was really helpful Um, and then uh, the therapy is uh, rapid trauma uh, rapid trauma therapy and uh, it he's one of the top PTSD therapists so he works with you know veterans and people who've been in horrific situations so again, very blessed to have like the top specialists in the world to be in my backyard. And um, I mean, every single week, just doing the work and I'm still doing the work. I've got, you know, a cognitive behavioral therapy booklet on my desk right now. So it's, and it's a never ending process, which can sound really, depending on your perception and perspective and how you look at it, it can sound really depressing or it can sound like an awesome opportunity. So I jokingly say mm. an exciting growth opportunity, you know, of, <laughs> you know, my, my brain has been messed with my soul has been messed with. And so this is my superpower and my curse at the same time as I get to continually work on it and continually study how to become, you know, a, a more healed version of myself. Uh, so very messy in the first, but it's definitely gotten easier. Obviously um, I did like intensive therapy for about two years and then kind of backed off a little bit. Now I just go basically once a month or whenever I need a checkup. Sure. That, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I think we always want healing to just be a quick, linear, boom, done. That is not at all the way it works ever. Yeah. No, it's just like physical fitness. You know, you, you don't gain a bunch of weight overnight. It's a process. And you don't lose a bunch of weight or you don't build a bunch of muscle overnight. It's a process. Same with mental, physical, spiritual, all of that fitness takes time and takes the daily grind of it. So it's just being able to do the monotonous grind of it. Yeah. Well, that's good. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for someone who feels like they're stuck in the monotonous grind of healing? (sighs) hold on, <laughs> keep going. Um, I, you know, and, and two, like, I think a lot of people get really obsessed with, with trying to heal and they start digging up dead bodies. Basically they start resurrecting and necromancing demons that they should don't have to like something. Sometimes things are just bad and they won't be fixed and it is what it is. And you just got to let it go and kind of move on. And so like I I caught myself because I was in the middle of, you know, doing all this therapy and doing all this counseling and it was detrimental um, because I kept trying to find problems um, instead of just embracing the fact that 
it's actually okay. And it's okay that it's okay. It doesn't make what happened to me okay, but it's okay that it's okay now. Um, and that was almost harder to accept than all the negative stuff because I'm so used to negative stuff. Um, so I would say like, no, no, when you've hit that point, like test yourself and be like, am I good? Am I, am I, and give yourself permission to, to be okay and move forward in life. So that's good. I think that, yeah, I think that that's so real. Like we do like to go back there and sometimes we don't need to, and sometimes we definitely need to. So it's a discernment process of knowing which is which and having a good team around you to help you figure it out. Yeah. And learning to be honest with yourself enough to give yourself that honest answer. And then it, that takes time because you've learned not to trust yourself because you've been gaslit or you've been abused or you've been told you're crazy. And so that process of rebuilding that self-trust is a lot of work, but it is the one of the most important things you can do. One of the most important things you can do. Um, so that would be my advice is focus on building that self-trust again. That's good. It's actually a great segue to what I wanted to ask next of like, what does it mean to be muted? Yeah, it's that complete like gaslighting of yourself and of who you know you're supposed to be. So I always knew that from the very beginning, I've got little journals to where I'm like, I'm going to be president of the United States and I'm going to be a billionaire. I'm going to change the world, you know, so that innate thing was always in me. Um, And all of that in between stuff was the direct opposite. So it's kind of funny, right? The most, most, the area you mo- hold the most power and influence in is the one that's going to be the most attacked by, you know, the haters or by, if you believe in spiritual stuff, you know, by the devil or by negative forces. It's so if you see an area of your life being attacked, know that it's a green light to run full force in that direction because it's probably wow. your superpower as well. So um, it's kind of like a, hint, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, you know? Um, so I would say like that experience was not having a voice, not knowing who I was, was denying myself of having opinions, was denying myself of, of, you know, engaging emotionally positively with anything. So I was so disassociated. And, um, a prime example is like going into the grocery store for the first time when I was in my twenties in California and not knowing what to buy because I didn't know what I liked and I didn't know if I liked peanut butter and jelly. And so having a complete and total meltdown in the middle of the grocery store, because I'm like, ah, it was like amnesia. I have no idea. Um, so then, you, you know, comes the fun part of testing out everything. I got to test out what kind of clothes I like to wear. What style am I? You know, am I, you know, a hippie? Am I, you know, an emo kid? What, <laughs> what do I like yeah. to eat? Do I like Asian food or do I prefer, you know, Italian or, you know, whatever. So I just kind of embraced it as an adventure and as like a test run of everything. And it was difficult, but it was fun and we found our way. So how did you discover that writing was an expressive way that worked for you? It's always been it. Um, like I said, I have journals from when I'm like five, six years old all the way to now. Um, so it, I, it was always something I always did. It was something I always thrived at. I always wrote papers. I always wrote, I could ace any sort of paper, any sort of research paper, any creative story, whatever. Um, so it was always an easy way to process what I'm feeling without anybody knowing or getting in trouble. So it was an act of rebellion a lot of times, and I could hide a notebook underneath my bed, um, so that was just always something 
And so um, a couple of years ago, maybe about six years ago, um, or maybe less than that, I was getting out of social work and starting my copywriting agency. And um, I realized I started going through all these journals because my mom gave me boxes from the house. And I was saying, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm like, holy cow, this has always been in me. And so to start that agency was a no brainer. And then even when I joined um, forces with Ron and Automation Empire and Wholesale Automation, um, they had me in various positions. And it's last week, I just got, I was building systems and operations. And I've been an executive in the company for since it started. But um, now I just got transitioned to CMO, the chief marketing officer. So I'm copywriting again. And it's just like a very full circle moment of like, oh, here we are doing exactly what I said I was going to do, you know, making great money, you know, like doing everything that I said I was going to do. And it it was just like a really huge moment of gratitude a couple of days ago where I was really sitting in it. And I'm like, that's just wild. Here we are. Wow. <laughs> right where we're supposed that's to be. That's awesome. <laughs> Congratulations on the new role. Thanks. It's, it's terrifying and exciting at the same time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. What advice would you have for somebody who wants to have a career in writing? Right every day. Uh, it's not about a feeling, like make it a discipline. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not in the flow or I don't feel it or I have to drink in order to, to get the creative juices. No, you don't. No, you don't. You have to write every day and you have to practice writing different types of writing every single day. So I'd say make it a discipline and then also read a lot of poetry um, whether you're writing fiction, nonfiction, because it helps um, attach creative analogies in your brain uh, that you wouldn't normally do. So it gets you into that flow state much quicker than maybe huh. you would just by trying to get it there. That's a good thought. I had never heard that one before. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. helped me quite a bit because I'm, I'm, I was never big into poetry, but then um, I stumbled upon Nikita Gill is probably my favorite modern poet. And um the way she connected very abstract things was like, oh, yes, yes. It's like, you know, Tetris, when the piece falls into place and it's like, yes, and it feels so good. Yes. That's what that mm-hmm. was like for my brain. And I was like, oh, I can yeah. write now or, oh, I don't have writer's block anymore. So um, be disciplined, write every day and then read poetry, whatever kind, does not matter. Just read poetry on a regular basis. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. What do you wish everyone knew about sex trafficking? that it can happen to anyone. It does not discriminate. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to come from a broken family. You don't have to be a drug addict. You can have the most perfect life. You can be the most successful person and you can still get caught up in it. Um, It does not discriminate. And even male, female race does not discriminate. It happens everywhere, unfortunately. Um, So I think people just don't understand that they probably know someone who has been sex trafficked mm. and they don't even realize it. Sure. Let's say that someone does know someone who's been sex trafficked and they do know. What is supportive? Mm-hmm. It's a very tricky question, right? Because it's it's a very dangerous world, not only for the friend, but the person involved. Um, so unless you're a trained professional, you shouldn't be approaching someone in that situation. But 
always casting vision for what's possible for their life because they believe that's the only thing possible for them at that point because they're so mm-hmm. sold into it and they're so caught up in it that that's the only thing. That's the only way. So if you start to paint a picture, a vision of something better and of a different possibility, then you can start to sometimes crack that that mindset or that you know mind prison that they're caught in and, and show them an opportunity, a very practical vision in a very practical way out. Um, it was funny because I'd always be driving these girls to the safe house from, you know, after we rescued them or after I got them out of prison or whatever. And I'd always ask them, you know, what do you want to do? Like now that you aren't doing that, um, what what's your dream job? And they'd always say like McDonald's or they would always say a cleaning job or work at a gas station. And I always thought it was super interesting that that's was their next possibility. And it always really struck me. And so I'm like, no, no, no. What did you dream of being when you were a kid? And then, oh, a veterinarian, a doctor, or this or that. I'm like, okay, let's get you there. Let's get you what you need in order to get there. And so I think re-helping, if you know someone and you're in a relationship with them, you know, friendship or whatever, is helping them, reminding them of who they were before this happened and reminding them that they can still be that person or that they can Mm. fulfill those dreams and reattaching them to that childhood and bringing them kind of out and around the current situation um, is the best way to interact. If you just notice that someone is potentially in a situation like that, then I would call the human trafficking hotline. Um, They have great resources or call your local police department. A lot of them have been trained in that area. Um, I used to train police departments all the time on this subject matter. And so a lot of them are now informed and now have training to assess the situation, or they might already have something in place and they're trying to collect enough evidence to put somebody away. So, Wow. Yeah. And that's very good. So same kind of questions, but this time about cults. What do you wish everyone knew about cults? That it's not as violent or obvious as it seems to be like on TV. You hear the ones you have documentaries about usually or hear about are are very radical and very wild. Um, But I think that that even made, I was on a podcast interview and somebody said, oh, it wasn't, you know, that bad of one. Um, And I was kind of like, he didn't mean anything by it, but it kind of like hit me because I was like, but that's what makes it so much worse because I still have mentality, the residue. It's it just is that much more deep seated because it, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Oh, it wasn't that. You're No, you're being too crazy or no, you, it wasn't that bad. And again, that gaslighting just makes me feel more insane. Um, and so I think that was the danger of it. So it's it's a lot more subtle. Um, and a lot more undercurrent than what people think. And so to just trust your gut um, in those situations. And if something feels off, it's off. And don't get, if, if you're like, this feels like a cult, you're probably right. And you should probably not go to another one of those meetings, you know, or whatever. Like, just walk away. <laughs> no, that's good. What is supportive if you've got a friend that you think or know is involved in a cult? Just love them. Just love them and give them space because eventually they'll find their way out. Um, and you couldn't tell me anything when I was in it because I just wanted to make things right and do good. And, you know, I was so wrapped up in it. And so when I came out of it, that's all I needed was love and support of, you know, 
Amanda, you were dressed as an emo kid yesterday and today you're dressed as a total like country girl. It's like, yeah, and I need your support in that because I'm trying to figure this stuff out, you know, <laughs> like don't judge me. Yeah. Just be like, you look great. I love those boots or I love the dark eyeliner, you know, whatever. Um, just the love and support, honestly. And then they'll find truth will come out. Truth will always rise to the surface. Mm, that's good. What have I not asked you that you want to chat about? What I'm doing now? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing now? I am married to an incredible, incredible, incredible man who I love very, very much. Um, and he's been a great support. And through his love and through his support, I've been able to turn into this extrovert networking business queen. Um, yeah. And and it's been fun. He's helped me come alive. And it's been fun coming alive. And I'm coming alive at 34. And that's okay. And I'm allowed to reinvent myself at this age. And um, he again, he, here's that word again, he's made space for that. Um, and he's made support for that. And then um, I, now I just provide other opportunities for people to make money. So I'm able to set people up with a revenue stream and provide them financial the closest thing to financial freedom. I mean, my parents, they have their own Amazon store and they were able to go to Italy for the first time. They were able to go out of the country for the first time for 20 days. And so it's cool to be able to offer those types of opportunities and freedom, you know, set people free, uh, bring freedom in that area. Uh, so I freaking love it. I love it, love it, love it. And I love how people's faces light up when they realize that, you know, it's not a scam. <laughs> Mm, <laughs> and sure. they're real people and this is actually a smart investment so that's that's probably the coolest thing in the world and we we work with a lot of veterans which is really cool as well and first responders so um it feels really good to give back to good people you know mm, that's awesome so yeah if we want to learn more where can we find you online um, I live on Instagram. I know it's on its way out, but I don't care. I'm I'm 34 again, so I do not care. I like Instagram. So um, Instagram, and then my name is Amanda Katarzy on there. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Mm. Yeah. So one of the fun questions that we always like to end with is if you could be any inanimate object, what would you be and why? Oh, God. There's so many objects to choose from. <laughs> you, you definitely threw me off with that. I don't know. I guess like a water bottle. Goal. A water bottle. Because a water I bottle. Wanna, Tell me why. I want to contain and give people life-giving substances. I want to give people life. I want to give people clarity. I want to be able to help them wash themselves and come clean and feel good and thrive. So mm-hmm. um, That's beautiful. Yeah, and that was on the spot. Dang, that's pretty good. Well done. Well done. That was awesome. (laughs) I appreciate you asking me. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for trusting us with your story, for um, educating us a little bit, for sharing the cool stuff and the cool healing, and for for doing the hard work to get to the point that you are now. I know that it wasn't easy, as you already shared with us, but thank you for fighting for yourself so that you could fight for us and that we can learn from you and help others um, live similarly. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate you. As always, a big thanks for listening. I would love it if you want to connect with Amanda on Instagram. She's at Amanda Katari. Got a link to that in the show notes. I'd love to connect with you on Instagram as well. I'm at Katie Axelson. Also wanted to offer a quick reminder that everyone's story is different. 
Everyone's perspective is different, even within the same topic or similar experiences. No one person can speak for an entire group. So if the topics we talked about today are something that you're interested in learning more about, maybe check out episode 83 with Emily Lewis, episode 94 with Jenny Lee, episode 58 with Soraya Hastings, episode 59 with Lena Sabula, or episode 66 with Crystal Day. Even better, if you know someone in real life who shares some similarities in their story, maybe ask if they're willing to answer some questions you have about it. Tell them about something you heard on the show and ask if their opinion is the same. Remember, do it with kindness, with gentleness, with compassion, with a desire to learn. It's how you're going to make your own world a smaller place. Until I see you next, know that you are loved, know that you are cared for, know that your story is valued. We will see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye.